Well, today we are going to tackle Revelation 4 and 5. And if you're here with us today for the first time, uh, we want to welcome you today and let you know that for the past four weeks, we've been on a series in the book of Revelation. And we feel that this series is very strategic and it's very timely for where the church of God, particularly in America, but also globally, where the church of the living God is at in this hour. Not because we're expecting to be rescued or not because we're planning on escaping any uh, tribulation or any difficulty, but more importantly, because of the main themes that Revelation speaks to, which is allegiance to the Lamb in the midst of empire. And so uh, if you want to catch up with our messages, you can do that on Antioch.is and uh, be filled in on the past three weeks. Last week, Jeffrey Moore did an outstanding job. Come on, give it up for Jeffrey. Teaching us on what it means to be a faithful witness to Jesus, particularly the message there that's emphasized uh, in the seven churches of Revelation. So we invite you to grab your Bible, turn with me to Revelation 4 and 5, and join us as we go a little bit deeper into our journey and our study of the book of Revelation. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to uh, have a good time this morning in the content. Father, thank you. Again, thank you so much. Our hearts are are full and our hearts are grateful for what you are doing and for what you are revealing and for what you are shaping here in this house. And Father, we know that you're doing that all across this city and truly, God, you are doing that all throughout the world. Lord, it is a joy and it is a privilege to be followers of the Lamb. Help us, we pray today, to have ears to hear. Help us to have hearts that can receive. Help us to have minds that perceive the wisdom and the counsel and the understanding of your spirit that is available today through the preaching and the teaching, the exhortation, the instruction of your word. We ask today, Father, that our hearts would be drawn to Jesus. We ask that our hearts would be fixated afresh and fascinated anew with who you are, that you would capture us again and that you would do what you did with John and that you would invite us to come near, that you would invite us to come higher and that in so doing and in so responding, you would reveal yourself to us afresh. We love you and we bless you today in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Well, Jonathan aptly uh, titled this Worship in the Throne Room, Revelation and Four, but uh, I retitled this uh, Worship Conversations Remixed. Uh, What a great opportunity that Jonathan and I had a few weeks ago and um, in our conversation, which was unrelated to the topic or the book of Revelation, we talked about the importance of worship as a people uh, in Antioch during our celebration series and, uh, and there were a lot of questions that emerged out of that, some of which we hope to address today. And the ones that we don't get to today, we will be responding to some of the questions that came out of that series a few weeks ago. So Revelation 4 and 5, I'm going to read a couple of verses and, and we're going to dive in. Let's begin with verse 1, shall we? Revelation 4, 1 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. 
At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Now let's just stop right there. So in your notes, the first thing that we want to do is very simply make some observations out of Revelation 4 and 5. And the first observation that I want to make here is that there is a door that is opened and that John is brought up or brought into the realm, the dimension of the Spirit. I'm not sure if this is in your notes, but I want to unpack this a little bit. Worship is always a response to an invitation from God. And, and when we really catch a hold of this, this can actually be very, very liberating because we're never the initiators of worship. Any prompting or any desire that we have towards God, for God, or about God is always by the mercy and the grace of God working upon our lives. Anytime we feel that we are initiating something with God or towards God, we're actually putting ourselves on the wrong side of the equation because we are always the responders to what God is doing and to what God is revealing. So our worship and, and all of its various facets and forms is always a response to God's invitation. It's always a response to God saying, come up here or come nearer or come closer or I have something I wanna show you or there's a mystery that I wanna reveal or there's something that I wanna do in your life but come a little closer and respond to me in that way. Uh, worship does not begin with us. Worship is a response of grace that is facilitated by the Holy Spirit to reveal the character and the nature of the triune God. So earlier today, we were singing that song, I see heaven in this place, and, and I, I see diseases being healed. And what we did was we responded to that. That was an invitation. That was an invitation for God saying, hey, come a little closer and press into this aspect of my character and my nature. I am still a God that heals and restores. And we say yes. Now here's something beautiful that happens. Worship is not only an invita a response to an invitation. Worship is also revelation that happens, or should I say it like this? Revelation comes when we respond to his invitation. So we see that God opens up a door and he says, come near, come into this dimension of heaven. And when John responds, the thing that follows is revelation. Revelation of who God is, revelation of the character and the nature of God. This is point two here. Revelation chapter four, verse two through eight. At once I was in the spirit and before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and in front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the center, around the throne, were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and behind. So, an invitation is given. John responds to that invitation and as a result of that invitation and his response to it, God pulls him close, pulls him near, and there is revelation that follows. Part of the revelation is this. The first thing that he sees is a throne. 
Very, very important. And in fact, I never realized this before, but there's actually more information or there's more that John describes about the throne than he does about the one sitting on the throne. And a lot of scholars believe this because God himself really cannot be described. So the very best that, that John can do is describe what he sees happening with the throne, on the throne, around the throne, near the throne, encircling the throne, surrounding the throne. And the throne here represents something very important about God. It represents his sovereignty. It represents his authority, his power, his limitless power. His limitless authority, his all-consuming sovereignty, these are the things that the throne, the image of the throne represents. And when John is revealing that to us, those are the pictures that we should be getting. Revelation follows the proper response to invitation. The next thing that we see is that John sees living creatures and the elders. They're singing, they're giving glory, they're bowing down, they're, they're giving forth demonstrable actions of worship and praise to the revelation of God that they have. Something interesting here for us to take note of, the main characters, which are nearest to the throne, are constantly responding to the revealed nature of God. It's constant, day and night. They never stop singing. They never stop responding. And when we talked about this in our ministry crew meeting this morning, one of the things we mentioned was, we really can never stop worshiping God because his attributes are endless. We'll never fully comprehend the, the magnitude of who God is or what God has done. And every time we catch a fresh glimpse of it, we respond with fresh worship to him. Notice that the content of their songs and the expression of their worship are completely focused on the character of God. So, here in uh, chapter four, verse, verse eight, day and night they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then in verse 11, their worship is, you are worthy, O Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. The content of their worship is not about how they feel. The content of their worship is really even not about how much they love God. Now, there's a place for that. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But here, nearest to the throne, their expression is completely on the character and the nature of God. Yes, and in the beginning of chapter 5, we see a new facet of the character and nature of God revealed enters the Lamb. So I just want to read a couple of verses from chapter 5. Let's start in verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. And then I'm going to skip down to verse 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And I'm going to skip to verse 9. And their response is, they sang a new song. For you are worthy, take note of the word worthy, to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. So we see the angel at the very beginning of chapter five say, who is worthy 
Repeat after me, who is worthy? So who is worthy to open the seals and enters the lamb, the next facet of the character and the nature of God that we see. And uh, when we talk about worship, it's impossible to talk about worship within talking about, without talking about worth and what it is to be worthy. So uh, a definition here, just from uh, a dictionary, is worth is having weight. And sometimes when you can't ascribe proper value, so like let's say a massive diamond, the, the worth of a massive diamond is considered and, and calculated by the cost and the worth of other diamonds. So sometimes there isn't an exact worth that you can place on something. What we see about Jesus is that Jesus is so worthy that he deserves all praise, honor, blessing, and power, essentially everything that Jesus' worth exceeds everything, so much so that he is worth all of it, (laughs) that Jesus is worth everything. That is pretty astounding to think about. The next thing that we see is that the creator God and the redemptive lamb are worshiped equally. Revelation four focuses on the creator God. And then in chapter five, the focus shifts to the redeeming lamb. Uh, A theologian, Bernard Eller says, it is certainly not that John desires to ascribe, ascribe greater honor to Christ than to God. Because for him, to praise Christ is to praise God. And this we see here in just a second, we'll, we'll take note of. We see that the lamb is actually seated on the center of the throne that God has already been said to be sitting in. Very interesting. That's really good. Um, so this takes us now, just a couple of observations that we made out of chapter 4 and chapter 5. This takes us to the question, what is the purpose of the throne room? Uh, both within the book of Revelation and perhaps equally as important, what's the purpose of the throne room today? Or what is the purpose of us entering into the presence of the Lord today? A couple of things that we're just going to give a quick overview on. Number one, what happens in the throne room is the Father is revealed. The Father is revealed. I'm going to talk about that more uh, in our next point when we talk about worship illuminates our vision. So, It is so important that we understand that the situations and the issues and the challenges of life, the perspectives, the distractions, the things that are happening here in this realm of life, in some facet, they are designed to actually pull our attention off of the heavenly vantage point. They're designed to get our eyes off of the character and the nature of God. Why is the character and the nature of God so important? It's not just so that we'll worship him. He's not a narcissist. He's, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't set this whole scenario up just so he can receive more glory. He understands that something very powerful happens when we respond to him in worship. Something powerful happens to us. It is very important that we have a revelation of who the Father is because it dictates and determines how we live on this li- in this earth, how we live this life. Notice something very, very important. And we find this at the end of the book in Revelation 22. In a moment, in the same way that we saw John caught up in Revelation 4.1, we see that the vision that takes place from Revelation 4 all the way through Revelation 22 is over and it's 
it's kind of like the four kids that went into the wardrobe when they entered into Narnia. If you guys remember, whether you read the book or saw the movie, four kids enter into Narnia. They're playing hide and seek. They're hiding from someone. They back up into the wardrobe. They enter into Narnia, and then years happens in Narnia. And then once they come out, it's exactly the same moment that when they went in. That's what's happening here in the vision that John has in Revelation. Revelation 22, the vision's over, and there he is again, still exiled, still on the island of Patmos, and now still responsible to pastorally lead these seven churches through some very difficult moments that they're going to go through. Now, why am I saying all that? Because the purpose of the throner is not that we would live there. I need at least one amen on that. Amen. The purpose of the throne room is not that we would set up camp and live there for the rest of our lives. In fact, if you guys remember, Matthew chapter 17, Jesus takes three of his disciples up onto a mountain to pray, and he's praying in preparation for very difficult things that are about to happen. And Peter says something. You guys remember what Peter said? He goes, this, I'm paraphrasing, is awesome. Let's build some tents and let's live in the presence of God forever. Jesus, I don't know what was going on there, but all I know is the father told him to shut up. He, he just said, hey, shh, shh, listen to what my son is about to say. Now, there's nothing wrong with desiring to be in the presence of God. We read a verse this morning out of Psalm 27 that says the one thing that I desire is to be in the presence of God. We read in our corporate reading in Psalm 84, better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. So how do we resolve this tension? We're always, our spirit man is always going to desire to be near to God to know him, to worship him, to interact with him, to be intimate with him. But the fact that we have been positioned as his governing representatives on earth, the purpose of those encounters with him is not for us to stay there. The purpose is for us to engage the world with the revelation that we've received of God in the throne room. It'd be like being in the midst of a battle and retreating back to the place of comfort, getting healed, getting restored, catching your second breath. We're not supposed to stay there. We're supposed to get healed, restored, refreshed, and engage the battle again. Number two, and this is, I'm just going to reference the message two weeks ago, but the second thing that uh, the throne room serves, again, is to announce and to reinforce Jesus is the Lamb. But Jesus, as the lamb, reorients us to what victory on the earth looks like. In the midst of empire that coerces and that manipulates and bullies and forces and enslaves, the way we enforce the victory of the kingdom is by following the rule of the lamb. And I'm going to read one quick uh, quote for you. Uh, It says, Revelation is primarily good news about Christ. I just want to continue to reemphasize this. Every message that we preach in the book of Revelation, Revelation, the primary message is the good news about Jesus, who shares God's throne and who is the key. Jesus is the key to the past. He is the key to right now, and he is the key to our future. 
And I'm not saying that in some weird, ambiguous, spiritual way. I'm saying that as watching him, following him, giving our, giving our hearts to him, giving our allegiance to him, living in the way that he lives is the key to seeing the kingdom of God come in the earth today. And therefore, therefore, Revelation is also about uncompromising faithfulness. The primary message is as we look at the character and the nature of God, as we follow the example of the lamb, it will produce inside of us an uncompromising faithfulness, which leads to an undying hope, even in the midst of unrelenting evil and oppressive empire. That's a sweet statement right there. I hope it's in your notes. <laughs> the next thing that we see from the throne room experience is we see that all creation is gathered, centered, and united around God's throne. Now, it's not literally all of creation right there in the throne room, but all of, all of creation is represented in the throne room. So if you look at that passage back in chapter four, we're not gonna read it, you'll have to reference it. The four living creatures who have heads that look like a lion, an ox, a human, and an eagle, or a flying animal. This is representative of, uh, most scholars believe, nobility, strength, wisdom, and swiftness the greatest attributes of all of creation. So the, the four living creatures are representative of the gathering of all of creation as it is designed to worship the Father and the Lamb. And then right outside of that, we see 24 elders seated on 24 thrones. There is a picture up here. It is a little bit washed out, but it's a beautiful painting that uh, helps to uh, describe what's going on here in Revelation chapter four. And so we see these 24 elders, and there, there is a not unanimous agreement, but many, many scholars believe that they're representative of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples, which together represent the people of God anywhere and everywhere throughout all of history. What I find really fascinating about this that goes perfectly in alignment with what Pastor Jade said is that they're seated on thrones as well. They're not just on their knees, as we see at the end of chapter five. They're seated in thrones, which is representative of they are sharing in the rule and reign. They're sharing in the authority of the Father, which goes to that point where we are designed to have throne room experiences, to gain perspective, strength, and a number of other things that we're gonna keep addressing throughout this message. But we are also designed to rule and reign under the authority of God here in the earth and to bring, as we spent nine months praying, his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen. So let's talk about what happens in worship. So when you're worshiping the Lord, specifically when you're worshiping the Lord uh, in the, the venue of song, in the venue of music, in the venue of setting aside concentrated time, we're going to talk about the fact that worship is holistic and involves all of your life. But there are moments where we can, we can not just worship God with the way that we respond in situations and not just worship God in the way that we work, but there are moments where we can concentrate where we can focus and give him our utmost attention and affection. And something happens when we do that. Number one, our vision is illuminated. 
Very, very important. Again, remember the context that we talked about a few weeks ago. Jesus was revealing himself afresh and anew to the church at that time that was under the oppression of Rome and that he was saying, I am worth it, remain faithful to me, and he who endures to the end will be rewarded. This is all worth it. This is all gonna work out. So he calls John up in the midst of exile, in the midst of oppression, in the midst of persecution to re-illuminate and re-clarify John's vision. That happens for us. Now, I don't know about you, but just very, very practically, when, when things are happening in my life, when things are swirling, when our emotions are out of control, when the enemy is just attacking my mind and offering me uh, his version of reality, I need to get in the word and I need to get in the presence of God. Because when I get in the word and in the spirit and in the presence, my vision gets clarified. Suddenly, this feeling of isolation and this feeling of giving up and throwing in the towel and running away and this isn't worth it, all of that dissipates because I have a renewed vision of who God is, but I also have a renewed vision of what's really going on around me. So the enemy wants to blow things up. He wants to try to amplify and magnify things to make them seem like they are greater than they really are. God doesn't have to blow himself up. All he has to do is say, you know what? Your perspective of me will change when your proximity changes. So if you'll draw near to me, you'll see me for who I really am. And the closer you get to me, you'll recognize that those things that seemed amplified in the realm of the earth, they're really small because you're focusing on the right thing. Our vision is illuminated. Let me just read this statement. I love this. Heaven is where things are seen for what they really are. I'm telling you, in the next three weeks, we need to spend some time in heaven so that we can see things for what they really are. So that all the fear that we have of what's going to happen on the other side of November 8th can be seen for what it really is. I'm not advocating passivity. I'm not advocating escapism. I'm advocating the church be the people of God in the midst of confusion and chaos and difficulty and God forbid even tribulation. Let us see God for who he really is and let us respond as his people appropriately and accordingly. We see things for what they really are, regardless of how they appear in the transient actuality of earth. A major purpose of John's book is to help us see on earth, watch this, this is amazing, to help us see on earth as it already is seen in heaven. As it already is in heaven. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on this earth as it already is in heaven. And when we see what reality already actually is in heaven, it gives us a strategy. It gives us a vision. It gives us a faith. It gives us a resilience and a tenacity for how to bring heaven to earth. It's not so much to see new realities, but it is to see ultimate reality of our own history from a new perspective. Second thing that happens in the presence of God. Let me just, let me just actually make mention of this. When our vision is illuminated, it will always produce hope. 
So a great litmus test for us to ask ourselves biblically as the people of God is, you'll know if you're really worshiping if you have hope as a people. Friends, I have hope. (laughs) And even if things get just dirty dark, we have a hope. An immovable, unshakable Christ in you, the hope of glory. I'm almost convinced this is probably one of the most important books for the church in this hour because it is a book that gives us hope. I was reminded as Jonathan was speaking this verse here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory that is eternal, that far outweighs them all. So then we fix our eyes, not on what is seen. We fix our eyes on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Man, I think I should have been on the organ today, actually. (laughs) The next thing that worship does is worship reinforces or reestablishes or renews, whichever verb you like, take your pick, our allegiance to the Lamb. Very briefly, I want you to think about the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus was not crucified because he was teaching people how to get to heaven when they die. Jesus was crucified because he challenged the powers that be by preaching the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How much of the gospel that you and I preach challenges the powers that be, or does it just tell people how to get to heaven when they die? When we worship Jesus, Our allegiance to the Lamb is being renewed and reestablished. We are reminded that because of Jesus' victory, he is Lord over the whole created order. And when we profess that Jesus is Lord, we are renewing our allegiance to him. If we're really honest, oh man, that's a Pastor Jade phrase. Oh, (laughs) if we, but if we are really honest with ourselves, we would admit that we are being pulled so hard in so many different directions throughout the week. I heard uh, there was a study just a couple of years ago that there are more than 700 marketing images that the average American is bombarded with on a daily basis. We are being pulled. Living in this world is not a neutral battlefield. We are being pulled and coerced and sometimes forced. And when we worship, Eugene Peterson says, the non-action of worship is backed by the power and the authority of the Lamb to reestablish our allegiance in Him. Thank you, Everett. Our fight in worship is our pledging allegiance. The greatest warfare that we can do is be reminded on and forced to rely on the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is our fight. And when we worship, our allegiance to the Lamb is reestablished. Also, worship strengthens our faith. 
We talked in week one, I believe it was, about the cyclical nature of the book of Revelation, that these are like theater scenes. It's not a chronological book. And there are, I believe, six or eight throne room scenes throughout the book of Revelation. And they, each and every one, precede something very terrible happening in the earth. Why is that? That's not happenstance. That's because when we are in the presence of the Lord, our faith is strengthened. It is so easy to get caught up in the difference of what we know to be true about God and what we know to be true about the reality of heaven and what we see. There's such a vast difference many times between what we see here on the earth and what we know to be true about God. But when we worship, our perspective is changed, our allegiance is renewed, and it strengthens our faith. We go, yes, he really is on the throne. Jesus, the lamb who was slain, really is worthy. And we know how ultimately this thing ends. Worship, lastly, reinforces our love. Just as Mary of Bethany, in I believe three of the four Gospels, there is the story of Mary who breaks her nard on Jesus' feet. And that was an expression of love. And when we worship, you and I are expressing our love. And as we express our love, our love is purified, it's strengthened, it's renewed, it's transformed into the purity of love that comes from the Trinity, not the 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 nasty love that comes from here on earth that we can so easily get caught up in, manipulative love, love that desires to take more than it desires to give. When we worship, our love is purified. And so when we pull all these things together, so when our vision is illuminated, when our allegiance to the Lamb is reinforced, when our faith is strengthened, when our, uh, when our love is reinforced and purified, something happens. We are transformed. We are changed. We are shaped into the image of Christ. When all of these things combine, vision illuminated, allegiance strengthened, faith resolved, uh, hearts conditioned and tenderized by the nature of who God is, we begin to change. And it may not happen immediately. It may not happen in one encounter. It may not happen in one moment. This is the importance of that wide sweeping arc, that meta narrative, the long journey that the people of God are involved in together. We as a people look different than we did last year. We do. We look different. We look different than we did four years ago. We look different than we did five years ago as a people because we are beholding God in the place of worship. So now let's bring this home. Let's talk here in the remainder of our time together and let's talk about worship today and let's talk about worship specifically in the corporate gathering. I want to make again just a couple of blanket statements about what worship is. Number one, worship is our rightful and our fitting response to the character and the nature of the triune God. Now you can break all those things down and it gets very, very insightful. It is our befitting response. It is the appropriate response. It is the right corresponding response. When we find out, oh my goodness, this is who you are, it demands a response. It demands that we respond with our thinking. Our thinking, if we're really worshiping God, our thinking will change. 
And it's one of the beautiful aspects about the word because the word reveals who God is, which should confront low-level, narcissistic, personal, self-consuming views of who God is. Now, if we're not careful and if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes the God that we worship is not God. It is the God that we've created. This is why long moments of fixating ourselves on the character and the nature of God over and above how we feel about God. I can't wait to get here. I'm, I'm kind of uh, over, over and above how we feel about God. You understand what I'm saying when I make that distinction? Because when I look at the truth of who God is, that is what confronts me. My feelings don't confront me with truth. They confirm me. And if I tell Christy over and over, baby, you know what? You just make me feel so good about myself. You make me feel like I'm a young man again, boo. You make me feel in love. You make me feel at some point she's going to say, this is really all about you, isn't it? Now, but when I say, Christy, this is who you are, and this is what I love about you, and this is what you do, that's called real worship, praise, and adoration, not just focusing on my feelings about her. And, and listen, out of this, we don't, want to get, we don't want to get like super critical, but we do want to be evaluative on the language that we are utilizing in the songs that we sing to God. And we'll, we'll talk more about that here in a minute. Okay, a couple of quick thoughts. Worship is holistic, meaning worship does not just happen in two hours when we get together, and worship's not just the song and the music portion of our services. Worship is everything that we do when our heart is postured to respond to God the right way. When you forgive and you don't want to, you're worshiping God. When you do a good job and no one sees it, but you know God is watching, you are worshiping God. When you wake up early and you spend time with the Lord, you're worshiping God. When you hold your tongue and you want to lash out, you're worshiping God. All of our life, when lived in response to the character and the nature of God that is revealed, is then worship to God. When you take your gifts and your abilities and your talents and you incorporate those for the advancement of his kingdom in the field he's assigned you to be in, that is worshiping God. When you make loads of money because God's gifted you to do that and you begin to steward that for the advancement of his kingdom, that is worshiping God. When you build a house, you're worshiping God. I can go on and on, y'all. It's, it's, it's holistic. Uh, number two, it's every day. Number three, worship is corporate. There is a dimension and there is a reality of worship that is corporate, not just individual. Yes. Worship is very personal, but it is never private. Worship is extremely personal, and it should be, but it's never private. A matter of fact, there is no such thing as individual worship. Now, before you think I'm crazy, we are always, when we worship, entering in and tapping into the worship that is continually, ceaselessly happening in the throne room. You're never worshiping alone, and that should be reassuring to you. Also, worship is transformative. Worship transforms us. While worship is definitively an expression of our love, it also shapes our love. 
I believe this is in your notes, but I want to read this statement I think is very insightful. When we worship, there are things happening in us that are also happening to us that change us over a period of time. So when we say that worship is formative or worship transforms us, what we mean is the practices that we engage in over a period of time are constantly shaping us to be a certain kind of person. Someone who eats six Twinkies a day is training their self to be a certain kind of person. Hold up, you weren't, I thought you weren't going to uncover Oh, I wasn't uncovering you. Okay, okay, all right, all right. (laughs) I think you get the point, right? But what we do in worship matters, not just because it's an overflow of our heart, but because what comes out of us into the hands of the Lord is also able to be transformative to us. It can shape us and form us. And as Christians, we want to be shaped and formed in the image of Christ. So, where am I here? Here we are. So how does the worship service specifically form us? The goal of this worship service, and I believe this is in your notes, this is something that we need to say over and over and over again. The goal of this worship service is to be Christ-centered and gospel-shaped. And what we mean by that is at the end of every service, we want to look back and, be, and, and say, Jesus is what we thought about, he's who we sung about, he's who we prayed to, he's who we laid hands on people in the name of. Jesus is the center. Jesus is who transforms us. We're not transformed by warfare. We're not transformed really even by thanksgiving. We're transformed by doing these things unto Jesus as the center of our worship service. It's fantastic. Uh, So let's talk about some elements that we see that are within our worship service and now things are gonna get fun. Uh, Because there are a lot of things that happen in the two hours or the two and a half hours or the three hours that happen when we get together. I'm just kidding, just relax, relax. Some of you are like, Time's up, preacher. Um, Oh, no, we got an hour and two minutes. (laughs) So what happens when we get together? There's a lot. Uh, We we open our services with a call to worship. Listen, if you're not here by 10 a.m., you're missing out on something. You're, You're missing out on the opportunity to hear and respond to the corporate invitation to assemble as the people of God and to shift yourself out of thinking about everything that happens and to respond as the people of God to a concentrated moment to enter into God's presence as a people together. You're really missing out on opportunity for that. That's not a rebuke. It really is, it's an admonishment for us to go, I need to be there on time. I need to be there on time. There's something that is important for me to connect with when I get there at the beginning of the service. So there is, a, there is an invitation to worship that goes forward. There is a silencing and a stilling of our hearts. There is entering into corporate scripture reading and the praying of the Lord's Prayer together. Uh, there's singing, there's music, there's receiving the offering. That is worship unto the Lord. Uh, we came from a faith tradition where the receiving of the offering was a time to uh, get you excited and to build your faith up. But we want you to understand that the receiving of the offering is our response of worship to the goodness of God. Uh, there is preaching and teaching. This right now is worship. 
This is worship. This moment when we posture our hearts to learn truth and to receive revelation is worship unto God. So I'm gonna go into some very, very, I'm gonna step onto some thin ice here. But when we start saying statements like, you know, we're just not as spirit-led as we used to be because the music part of worship doesn't go as long as I like for it to go. That's actually a dualistic dichotomy. That's us not understanding that all of the elements that happen in a service are worship to God and they form us. Now, the singing and the music part do a certain thing it has, a, it has a certain facet. It's a certain dimension of worship. The preaching and the teaching is a different facet and a different dimension of worship. The corporate scripture reading, the corporate prayer is a different facet and it's a different element of worship. But when our hearts are to respond rightfully to God, to his worth and his value, all of what we do when we get together is worship to God. We're going to focus on two elements in, in, the, in the closing moments that we have together. And if you guys would help throw that visual up on the screen for me. This became something that was extremely clarifying for me. And I wish we had a little bit more time to unpack this. Some of you guys have heard me preach and teach on this before. And I got this from Dennis Peacock. The concept here is, that Dennis preached, is the kingdom of God is Grand Central Station. So this, this center right here is what we're gonna call Grand Central Station. It is the center, it's the hub of the wheel. And what he means when he says the kingdom of God is Grand Central Station is he is saying that every other interest and every other important thing that is within the scope of Christendom, like our missiology, some of us are passionate about missions, and what we do is we make missions Grand Central Station, and we see everything through the wheel of missions. Missions is not Grand Central Station, the kingdom of God is. Worship is not Grand Central Station, the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus is. Signs, wonders, and miracles is not Grand Central Station. Solid doctrine, eschatology, I mean, we can go on and on. It's not Grand Central Station. Those things find their proper balance and they find their proper tension and they find their proper fitting when they are rightly connected to an understanding and a pursuit of the kingdom of God. Are we all together on that? Now in worship, we see the same thing happening. Because in worship, there are all kinds of different songs. We're gonna focus now on the set list. We're gonna focus on song selection. Now, you may not be as analytical about this as Jonathan and I are, but I guarantee you, you felt the impact of it. Because over the past few months, I've heard people say, things are different and I'm not sure what, what it is. I can't, I can't put my finger on it. Well, let me let you in on something. The nature of our songs over the past year have changed. They are definitively about God and Jesus. They are less about set a fire in my soul that I can't contain. You know how many times I and me are mentioned in that song? In my soul that I can't contain, that I can't control, and I want more of you. Oh, God, yeah, by the way. I'm not knocking that song. I love that song. I've had some great encounters with God in that song, and it fits because look up here to the top right, one o'clock. That's a song of intimacy, And some of us love songs of intimacy. There are songs that are designed to help us thank God. There are songs that are designed to help instill doctrine. There are songs that are designed to help us engage in a place of warfare, to address, to oppose, to resist, to expose, to break in, and to break through. There are songs of intercession. 
There are songs of redemption. There are high praise songs. There are songs of lament. We're going to talk about that here in a minute. There are different kinds of songs that we as a people sing to God. Now, what we like to do if we're really, really honest with ourselves, there are some of these songs that we connect with better than others. Isn't that right? Yes, absolutely. Months ago, when I first started talking with Jonathan, I said, listen, I said, I want an environment that emphasizes the victory and the triumph of God because we're supposed to be victorious and triumphant people. And then things happen like happened earlier this year where I'm confronted with the injustice that is happening to a certain segment of people in our nation. And I'm confronted with the reality that life is not all victorious and triumphant for everyone every day. That there are people that are mourning and they're grieving and they're lamenting. Guess what? There are songs that actually help us do that. There are songs that actually help us connect with the comforter of God, the compassion of God, and we need to sing those songs. I said, we need to sing those songs. Amen. They don't make us feel as good as the warfare songs. They don't make us feel as good. They're a little bit uncomfortable. They're slightly awkward, but we need them because they reveal the character of God and they condition our heart and they tenderize us and they form us. Jonathan, anything you want to say? Yeah, about that? well, one one thing about lament. So if we're if we're having a lament type service like we had a couple of months ago, and you're in the best season of your life, what do you do with that? Mm. Part of being in a body is feeling what others feel, even when you don't feel it. It's entering in and participating with them. If we are called to be light in darkness and we are called to bring the kingdom and the will of God into the earth as it is in heaven, then we cannot do that if we don't acknowledge things are not right. Things are not as they should be. When there's people getting murdered, there's uh, we're just going to stop right there. Things are not as they should be. So when we lament, we cry and we we cry cry out. out. We cry, we enter into the pain. Even if it's not my pain, it is my pain. It becomes my pain. So good. Because even if they're not in the body of Christ, they're still formed in the image of God and God loves them so deeply. So that's just lament. That's just one thing. And vice versa. How do, why do you sing songs of victory and why do you sing songs about the constant nature of God when it's not real in your life? This goes all the way around that wheel. All the way around. So we sing these type songs because if we want to be formed in the image of Christ, we don't get to pick and choose. All of this is displayed in the life and the nature and the character of Jesus Christ. And so if we want to be formed in his image, we submit ourselves to as much as is possible in this season singing these songs. So good. Personal preference is not bad. I got a personal preference on just about everything in my life. Me too. But personal preference is not synonymous with big picture perspective. Are you understanding that? Right? In fact, if all I do is read the books of the Bible that I really prefer, I'm going to be very unbalanced. If all I do is sing songs that I enjoy and songs that I connect with, I'm going to be unbalanced about who God is, and consequently, my preaching is going to be unbalanced. The way I treat my family is going to be unbalanced. The way I see you and our ecclesiology and the way I see the world is going to be unbalanced because I'm being selective on things that connect with my personal 
preference. And again, if we're honest with ourselves, many of us attribute the presence of God or the movement of God's spirit to certain types of songs. I want you to think about that. I want you to get gut level honest with me this morning and say, when I get to sing songs like this that are very chant-like, that are very simple in their chorus structure, that get to go on for 10 and 11 minutes, uh, I really feel near to God. That's a personal preference. Just be, you know, we sing Crown Him With Many Crowns, a little bit more of a difficult song to sing, a little bit more of a wordy song, a little bit more of an intellectually engaging song. Let me just, let me just share this. The Holy Spirit was just as here and just as near if we believe that worship is a response to the fact that he is already here waiting for us and inviting us. So again, personal preference isn't bad, but it just, if we live in personal preference, it keeps us from having a holistic and complete perspective. Number two, understanding this helps us be strategic. Understanding types of songs. Every song was designed, it was authored, it was arranged, it is performed for a particular purpose. We could actually manipulate you with the kind of songs that we sing. We can do it. We can manipulate you with our arrangements. We can manipulate you with our style. Hey, oh, hey. We, can, we can manipulate you with that. We can do that. We can manipulate you with our volume, with our intent. Gary's, Gary's going, what was that? What are you doing? Are you in pain? We can manipulate you. We can manipulate you how much we linger. We can manipulate you with language. I feel the spirit of God is just saying right now. And because I'm saying that the spirit of God is saying to me right now in the midst of this moment here in time. Come on. I could preach a lot better. I really could. No, I'm just saying, we can manipulate you. Don't be a people that are manipulated and then start going, the spirit of God is not moving here like it used to be moving. And we're not lingering as longing as we used to be. Listen, the spirit of God is in this place because the Bible says so. Not because I feel him or I don't feel him. What do we do when you feel him and you don't? Do we do, who wins? Jesus wins. And he's here. He's here, y'all. He's here, folks. We get to be strategic when we understand these things. Right? We're not singing, celebrate Jesus. We're not singing that on Good Friday. We're not singing songs of resurrection on Good Friday. We're singing songs that help us enter into the pain and the sorrow and the suffering and the crucifixion of Jesus. And we're also not singing those songs of lament on Resurrection Sunday. Helps us be strategic in our formation and worship of God. Uh, the next thing we want to talk about. No, no, no. You share this right here. I'll play. I'll play. Uh, hey, Drew, if you just want to turn that keyboard down, brother, that'd be... The next thing we're going to talk about is the Lord's table. Where's Sarah at? Where's Sarah? Sarah, come on, can you play? I have Sarah. Of course play. she can. She's Sarah. That's like me playing. I just delegated. <laughs> oh my goodness, the Lord's table. If you've been here longer than a few months, you know that taking weekly communion or coming weekly to the Lord's table. Hey guys, I like it. Hey, put the focus on Jesus. That's good. 
that is a fairly new thing for us on a weekly, consistent basis. So why do we do this? Number one, coming to the table is a sacrament of the church. What do we mean by that? Well, there are a few criteria, and we're just going to talk about this one, but it's something that was instituted by Jesus. Yes, if the uh, communion attendants would go ahead and come forward. It was instituted by Jesus. Jesus said, "Do this, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And it's been a tradition of the church since that day. And even before that day, if we go back and look, Jesus uh, redeemed Passover meal. That's what he did there. Jesus took Passover and redeemed it into something else, drawing on the history they already had. So we come because Jesus tells us to, number one. Two, because it reminds us of our dependence. It reminds us the fact that we come we, we most of the time don't pass it down the aisles. We ask you to come to the table. It's an act of your volition, responding, just like everything else we've talked about, responding to the invitation of God to come to his table. And we come because we realize we need. How many of you need? I need. I need this. My physical hunger is not going to be satisfied much by this, but I need this much more than I realize. I need this. Another thing that coming to the table does is it draws our attention off of us, off of the music, and it puts the attention. When we come forward, the attention is solely on Jesus Christ, on his nature, his character, and his finished work. This is the climax of of our service. When we come to the table, we sing about Jesus, we preach, and we preach for the edification and the equipping of the body. But ultimately, if Jesus doesn't meet us and do something in us, it's all worthless. Jesus touches us when we come. And this is not the only way Jesus touches us. That's not what I'm saying. But when we come to this table, there is a tangible means of grace that somehow in divine mystery, when we partake of bread and juice, the simplest of things, the simplest of things, Jesus has a way of doing something miraculous and divine in our physical and spiritual bodies. He brings sustenance, redemption, forgiveness, grace, all of that when we come to the table. When we come, we are confronted with our sin and our neediness. When we come, we recognize we've been invited by God. When we come, we are eating of Jesus' blood and body. We are always reminding ourselves. Guys, we never get past the cross. As Christians, we never get past the cross. In other words, we never get to a place where we don't need to think about it over and over and over and over again. We need to be reminded of the cross. And lastly, we come together recognizing that we have different backgrounds. We, we come from different classes in society, different levels of education, different fields of society. And we come together because we recognize Jesus is forming a body. He's forming us into a people, not just millions and millions and millions of individual peoples. He's forming a body. So with that said, should we move into the table?